There are two readings this evening, and the first can be found on page 1173 of the Bibles in front of you. 1173. This reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, starting at verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The second reading is on page 995. This is our Gospel reading and is taken from Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, And he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, to understand your word to us, words that sometimes are challenging and difficult. Uh, Lord, help us to make them real, help them to guide our lives. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, I'm very glad that you've got Melvin Tinker coming to speak to you next week because um, there is a common myth around that the Old Testament is very nasty and the New Testament is very nice. That the Old Testament is all about smiting and bloodshed and uh, ghastly things happening in history. And the New Testament is all about love and uh, they portray very different pictures of God. Uh, and I hope Melvin will tell you that's completely bunk. Um, but... Uh, It is an interesting and very uh, pernicious myth. And it's particularly difficult, actually, when you are confronted with, uh, and I hope we'll be looking at uh, these words of Jesus from the Gospels uh, from uh, this evening, that Jesus there is saying things that are very, very difficult. He's saying things that are particularly difficult for our uh, supposedly tolerant culture to take on board. He's talking not in terms of punishments in this life. He's talking in terms of eternal punishments, of separation, of things like heaven and hell and judgment. Things that people are very averse to talking about today. People are very uh, reluctant to have anything that they do judged in any way at all. And who is God to have the temerity to have an expectation of us and the way that we should live. I'm very much aware, of course, though, when talking about these things, that um, in our culture it's almost become a a matter of mockery uh, and amusement. Um, I feel myself slipping sometimes when talking about judgment into an Ian Paisley accent. In fact, you may know the story of Ian Paisley once who was preaching, apparently. This is allegedly a true story. Ian Paisley was preaching about heaven and hell. And in his sermon he said, In hell there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And a little old lady stuck her hand up at the back of the church and said, Mr. Paisley, I don't have any teeth. (laughs) And apparently Ian Paisley said, Teeth will be provided. This passage does tell us very clearly, this is the words of Jesus, that there will be a judgment. You can't escape that. He says that frequently, particularly in this section of Matthew. It's a theme that emerges constantly uh, in the New Testament. It's a theme that makes the good news such particularly good news. 
because it assumes, the whole of the New Testament assumes that judgment, accountability to God is inevitable and that none should be able to stand before God if we were judged purely on the basis of our own sins and frailty. The glorious good news of the gospel is because of what Jesus has done, we will not have to. But there is going to be a judgment. We are accountable to God. Now, of course, um, we're probably quite used to accountability these days, aren't we? If we're in the teaching profession or the NHS or any uh, type of employment, we know what it is to have the annual appraisal. Uh, You know, when your appraiser will say nice things about you before they deliver the killer punch about the thing you've got wrong and then to say some nice things, well, they should do it that way. Anyway, that's what we're trained to do. Clergy have to go now through ministry development reviews, which are not appraisals. No, they're not, really. And, um, but we know in our own lives, don't we, that, that, that there is an expectation on us in our working lives that we are appraised for our performance. And sometimes those appraisers can be just and sometimes they can be unjust. So it, it's quite reasonable to expect that the one who has created us should be one to whom we one day give account. And... Jesus makes it clear that nobody will be exempt. There isn't an opt-out clause. Some, uh, for, for some of our clergy, we've just introduced this ministry development review process. Some of them can opt out because they're about to retire or they're, uh, they're under this amazing... Have you got freehold, Phil? Have you got freehold? Oh, Phil is immune from everything, actually, under freehold. It's the most secure job security you can get anywhere in the whole wide world. Um, so Phil could have an MDR or he could not have an MDR, depending on what he feels like, really. Have you had one? Oh, marvellous, there you are. Am I doing it? Oh, okay, fine. (laughs) There's no opt-out. Jesus says, people will be gathered in this passage, Jesus will be be gathered from all the nations before God for this accountability. And Jesus says that, interestingly, outwardly, there may well not be that much to choose between people. He says it's a, it's a matter of separation of sheep and goats, said Jesus. Now, we would think, well, sheep and goats are pretty different. You can tell the difference. But I can say with some pride, actually, I can tell the difference because I won the Guess the Weight of the Sheep competition at the Lawton Agricultural Show this year. I say that with some pride. I was only two kilos out. But in the ancient Near East of Jesus' day, sheep and goats looked very, very similar. Separating them out was a work of some expertise. The judgments that we, we might make on people, on very superficial judgments, are not the judgments that God will make. God will see beneath the surface to the very heart, the soul, the motivations. He'll be able to distinguish between those actions that outwardly look similar to the actions of another, but whose motivation may pollute them and distort them. And this shouldn't be a surprise because the way that God has made the world is that he has ingrained within every human heart something of an understanding of his moral law. We have each one of us, even, even if we come from the most distorted background even, or, or broken background, even if we're borderline psychopaths, <laughs> All of us have some sort of sense of conscience. 
some sort of inner voice that helps us to discern between that which is good and that which is bad. It's, it's, it's universal across every culture and every time. It's written into us because there is a moral law of the universe just as there are laws of physics. And it manifests itself in that discernment, that capacity to choose between the good and the bad. But there's also something in us where we have a very deep sense of fairness. The second thing children learn to say after they learn to say no is usually it's not fair. Right from the very earliest age, children have a very keen sense of what is fair and what isn't. And we also have within us a very keen sense of justice. That if people do horrific, ghastly things, we shouldn't just brush it under the carpet and say, oh, it's fine, we'll just, we'll just press on. You know, when someone like Ratko Mladic goes to the International Court of, the human, of, of Human Rights, International Court of Justice, it's not okay that while he was a general in Serbia, he presided over the murder of thousands of people. It's not okay that Nazis presided over the Holocaust. It's not okay that millions of people were murdered in Rwanda. And if those ghastly things happen, we have within us this intrinsic sense that there must be justice, there must be punishment, there must be restitution. It's written into who we are. And yet I find it quite strange that in our culture people think that God shouldn't be like that. People think, oh, God shouldn't be wrathful or angry. And of course, if, if wrath and anger is just like a two-year-old throwing their toys out of the pram because they're cross, of course they're right. But wrath and anger that's ascribed to God in the Bible is nothing to do with that. It's God's settled displeasure and opposition to that which is evil. I mean, if God was unmoved by the crimes of Ratko Miladic or the genocide in Rwanda or the holocaust of six million Jews in the Second World War, we would say that there's something wrong with him. It's just that we don't ascribe that same sense of justice and righteousness to his dealings with us because we think somehow we should be immune from that. All of these things are written into the very fabric of the universe. So when Jesus talks about judgment and accountability to God, although we may recoil from it and think, oh my goodness me, that sounds awful, at the same time there is a deep resonance about it that human beings are not simply uh, to be allowed to go through life with no accountability at all. In fact, of course, it was uh, Paul's sense of this accountability and judgment that all would receive uh, before God that, that motivated him to talk to the Roman Christians about being able to turn the other cheek and to forgive. Because his understanding in Romans chapter 12 is that even if people get away with it in this life, they will not get away with it in the next one. So there is a sense in which God's judgment is operating and is at work. So the interesting thing from from a a Christian point of view, though, is, is this the criteria that appear to be used by Jesus when he talks here about judgment? Because this seems to be a judgment, initially, on the surface anyway, on the basis of people's behaviour. 
How does this judgment take place in this story? It takes place but uh, that those who have demonstrated love and kindness towards those who are excluded and poor, those who have welcomed in the stranger, those who have ministered to the prisoner, fundamentally acts of goodness and kindness to those on the outside. Is that that's the criteria that would appear to be, the sole criteria that are being used here in order that people are welcomed into the presence of God eternally or excluded eternally. And there is clearly an exclusion. And then you might, I'm sure you might, particularly in Bishop Huntington, I hope you'll be saying to yourself, well, what about the gospel? Is Jesus really saying that, that judgment and salvation is about whether we're nice to people or not? <laughs> On the surface, it, feels, it sounds a bit like that, though, doesn't it? Let's be honest. But let's look into it a little bit more deeply. Because James, as you know, in James chapter 2, verse 14 and verse 17, said that faith without works is dead. So there is something that these acts of kindness that Jesus is talking about there ought to be a manifestation of the reality of a transformed life. If, If faith doesn't make any difference at all to the way that you behave, then it calls into question whether it's real faith in the first place. So that's one thing to say. But the second thing to say, I think, is is found in some of the words that that Jesus uses here. In verse uh, 34, he talks about, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. So something God has already done to these people who are being judged. And then the second thing, in verse 37, where Jesus describes those who are being saved as the righteous. Now, righteousness in the New Testament, is not used as a word to describe people who are morally upright. It's fundamentally about someone's status before God. Someone who is righteous is someone who has come into a living relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ and is therefore granted this status as righteous before God. Um, The great reformer Luther talked about imputed righteousness that it was a status that was received as a gift. And it was received as a gift through the gospel. And the gospel, the good news is that we are all sinners in need of judgment, but that God in Jesus Christ has taken the punishment on the cross that our sins deserve in order that the judgment that is described here is not something that we have to endure personally because Jesus has effectively endured it on our behalf welcomed us into his relationship with God the Father through him, given us a new status and guaranteed eternity forever for those who believe and trust in him. I wonder whether this passage, and I may be disappearing into heresy down a rabbit hole at this point, so please forgive me and ignore me for the rest of this if if, if this is what you think I'm doing. But I think there is an intriguing possibility that this passage, which is so often quoted as being, oh, this is the definitive proof that Christians should be nice to people who are poor, actually may not have very much to do with that at all. That whole ministries have been built on precisely that understanding and interpretation of this passage. There are two things that I think lead me to question that. The first is... The word that Jesus uses 
of those who are being judged favorably or, or, or of those who, to whom uh, good things are being done in this passage is he describes them as, in verse 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And that's always been interpreted as saying, well, Jesus so identifies with the poor that he calls them his brothers and sisters. I don't think the original Greek will allow you to do that. Whenever Jesus uses that word that's translated here, brothers and sisters, uh, he always uses it to refer to those who are part of God's family. So I think this raises the very intriguing possibility, and particularly for the second reason, that this passage appears as part in Matthew of a number of passages that are specifically addressing issues around the return of Jesus Christ, the end of the age, and uh, heaven and hell. And this is where I'm probably maybe going off-piste and maybe going a bit heretical, but you can stone me afterwards if you'd like to. I reckon, I think it might raise the intriguing possibility that this is a parable, in some ways, seeking to address that big question that always comes up at a Christianity Explored course when people have understood that the gospel uh, and we are, how we are saved, we are saved by a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ as we respond to God in repentance and faith. The obvious question is, what happens to those who've never heard of Jesus? which is quite a legitimate question if the gospel is about responding to God personally through faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder, and I'm only wondering a bit, whether this raises the question that the people that are referred to here, the people who are being judged as being righteous, have been judged that way because of their response to that revelation of Jesus that they have received. And the revelation of Jesus that they have received is those who are followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus' brothers and sisters. I don't know. <laughs> but I think it's an intriguing possibility that that might be what's at the back of Jesus' mind in many ways. This is judgment here for non-Christians on the basis of the way that they have treated Christians. The trouble is we look at this text from the point of view of wealth and power. The original people who read these texts were people who were on the margins of society, who were slaves, who, were, who, were out, who weren't at the seat of power. Christians were a pers- tiny persecuted minority for the first few hundred years of the church's life. And for them, so for them, this would be a live issue. That Jesus might be saying, the judgment on non-Christians who have never met me or heard about me might be on the basis of what they do know, which is what they've seen of me in you. I'll put close brackets at that point. Which may be quite bad news, because at the moment, 80% of the acts of violence and religious persecution in our world are against Christians, against our brothers and sisters. So there's quite a lot of evidence that folk are not responding terribly well to the Jesus that they see in our brothers and sisters around the world. Anyway, close brackets there. Let's move on. At the end, Jesus makes it very clear, though, doesn't he? And this is... This is heart-stopping, isn't it? Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, 
Now, there, there is, it would appear very clearly throughout the Old Testament, uh, throughout the New Testament, there is a separation. There is a separation. Eternal life, on the one hand, and metaphors that describe hell and eternal fire on the other. Now, what that looks like, we're always gazing into metaphors here. Just as heaven is more glorious than we can possibly imagine, so hell may be more terrible too. And it may be that eternal fire refers, as John Stott used to say, to not to an eternal state of being poked with sticks forever, but of what he called conditional immortality. That there is eternal life or there is nothing. That's another several sermons. But we do know from 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 that God's desire is that none should perish. That judgment is delayed, says Peter, so that all may possibly have the opportunity to repent and turn to God. The New Testament seems to imply to us that if it is always God's desire that people respond to his love and come to him, and that if they don't step into eternity, the fault is not his. The fault, it is always their choice. It is always our choice. This is the extraordinary fearful thing of what it is to be a human being. That our freedom is not an illusion. That we can genuinely make really stupid choices. We can turn our back on the very source of life and choose to go our own way. It's a very real possibility that God does not, he woos us, not coerces us. There's a wonderful, uh, one of the best books about Jesus' return and heaven and hell and judgment and everything else is, is, is The Last Battle, which is the last uh, story in C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories. And there's some particularly powerful imagery in that about how two different groups of people can perceive the same thing in vastly different ways. Uh, as the story winds up, those who are destined to go uh, with Aslan into Narnia see before them this beautiful landscape, trees, scents, what, just wonder, it says, with each chapter being better than the one before. And those who are turning their back on Aslan's offer of love interpret exactly the same thing as a dark and smelly stable sitting on piles of dung. Persistent choices to turn our back on God's love can lead to an utter misperception of God's love and what he actually intends for us. This, this is the reality, this is the moral reality, the spiritual reality that undergirds uh, this world in which we live, that goes much far deeper than the evidence and the things that we see with, uh, with our senses. This is the reality that Jesus invites us to engage with, the eternity that is beyond time, the eternity that transcends our earthly experience, the eternity which, to which God invites us to become a part and a participant. And whilst this passage on the surface reading is, is, is scary in many ways, it merely serves to amplify the extraordinary good news of the gospel. 
that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we have passed through that which is described here already. We are already counted as righteous. We are already welcomed into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ that starts in the here and now because we are his followers, because we've committed our lives to him, because we've surrendered our lives to him as Lord and King. And that's a relationship that begins now and will go through our physical demise into eternity, where, as C.S. Lewis said, each uh, chapter is better than the one before. Now, if you want to be sure about that, the promises that our friends are going to be making uh, in this confirmation service in just a moment are phrases and responses that, if you can echo in your heart, will be a guarantee and a surety that eternal life begins for you now as well. So as we go through these promises and these affirmations of faith, I'd love to invite you, if you're a little perhaps uncertain about these things, maybe to say them out loud, maybe to echo them in your hearts, because these promises are about turning away from a self-centered life. They're about turning to Jesus Christ and submitting our life to him. They're about believing what he's done for us on the cross, receiving his gift, of the holy, uh, uh, the, his gift of forgiveness. And then as we lay hands on the candidates and ask for the blessing of God's Holy Spirit, I will say to each one of them that God has called you by name and made you his own. God has called you by name and made you his own. And then confirm, O Lord, your servant with your Holy Spirit. That when we become followers of Jesus, God indeed comes and dwells within us. Not metaphorically, but in actuality. That as followers of Jesus Christ, he makes his home within us. And begins a wonderful work of transformation that begins in this life. And will find its completion in eternity. Amen.